Welcome to Christian Challenge. If this is your first time, we're glad you're here with us. Um, kind of loud, huh? All right, there you go. If you're here with us for the first time, my name is Jeremy, and uh, I'm on staff with Christian Challenge. Um, and tonight we are continuing in a series uh, entitled Behind Enemy Lies. Um, and if you weren't here for either of the first two weeks of the series, uh, basically, this is a really good series, and you should go online to uscchristianchallenge.com and listen to the previous two weeks to catch up on what we're talking about, but not right now. Um, or get the notes from somebody who has gone, and uh, they could fill you in a little bit. If I'm too loud, I could always turn myself off, because I talk pretty loud, too. Good? Does that sound too loud? All right. All right, good. Um, anyway, so we've been talking about uh, this idea of behind enemy lies, and one of the things that we mentioned the first week is that there's really three enemies that we face on a regular basis. Um, and you see up here on the screen, there's the, the flesh, which really is, you know, our fallen uh, nature that seems to really just want to satisfy its own sinful desires. Um, the second enemy that we commonly face is the world, which essentially that is just the culture around us that really is opposed to Christ and his ways. Um, and then the last enemy and the one that we're really going to focus on most of this series is the devil, and he's really the leader of all who really oppose Christ. And we talked about in the first week that it's important to differentiate where the attack is coming from from one of those enemies, because depending on who's attacking you, you, would, you fight back in a different way. And uh, we talked about there's different tactics used by each one of those, those enemies, and in this series, we're talking about what are the different kinds of attacks that uh, the devil, or we'll go back and forth using the word enemy interchangeably. How does the enemy really attack us, and how can we then fight back? And we talked about this verse, 1 Peter 5, 8, which says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Um, and he would like nothing else that we talked about than to really just ruin your life, ruin your life, ruin mine. And, and the scary thing is, he's a lot faster and stronger and smarter and more resourceful than we could ever be by ourselves, um, which is the reason we really need Jesus in the first place to really combat these, these attacks. And one of the ways the devil really tries to attack us that we talked about in the previous two weeks is he tries to implant in our minds these, these lies and emotions that at best are kind of half-truths, and we begin to buy into them, and then we begin to act on them, and we base our life decisions on them and before you know it, we've ruined our lives and we've ruined other lives, um, which is exactly what the devil wants. And usually the way the devil goes about doing this is not in a very uh, obnoxious, overt way where it's like he jumps out and he kind of scares you and stuff like that. Like if he did those kind of strategies, it'd be a lot more obvious and we'd probably be less likely to be given into those. We might be scared, but we're not going to probably fall prey to him. But no, but what the devil does is he just like a lion working its way through the brush as it's stalking its prey, he does that same kind of thing where it's, if you've ever seen the movie uh, Inception, which we watched a couple weeks ago with the, some people uh, in Mammoth, it was really fun. It's, I don't know why, it's one of my favorite movies. It's very intriguing. But it's the same idea of what he's doing in that movie. He's, he's trying to implant these ideas very subtly to the point that we almost think they were our ideas, but really they came from him. And it's very subtle, and the, unfortunately, the bad fruit of some of these choices as we buy into them, we don't see them play out for 5, 10, maybe 15 years down the road, and at that point, we've really messed up our lives and the lives of other people. So 
is very subtle. We have to be careful of that. Um, and we don't want to build our lives on it. So an overarching paradigm that I hope begins to uh, take root in each of you guys' minds over the course of this series is the idea that not every thought or emotion that comes inside of your little head, or big head in my case, uh, is from you. Sometimes those thoughts are from God, which is a good thing. He can put thoughts and emotions in your mind. But sometimes it's from the enemy, and so we have to watch out. The problem is we oftentimes, when we hear stuff like that, we tend to think, you know, okay, maybe so. But my mind... It's kind of a little bit more like this, this picture of this vault here. Um, we think, it's pretty secure. Nothing's going to get in that I don't want. I'm fine. Unfortunately, our minds tend to be more like this. A um, little rusted, fairly easy to get into, fairly penetrable, and kind of pathetic. Um, so we really need God's help in figuring out, okay, how do we capture the thoughts and the emotions that get inside of our mind so that we can begin to filter them through Scripture and let filter really be the guide for how we choose what thoughts to capture and what thoughts to hold on to. And if, that doesn't, if a thought does not pass through the Scripture filter, then it's a thought not worth entertaining, and highly probably it's from the enemy, and so we want to reject it altogether. So we talked about we want to resist and we want to replace lies that the enemy puts inside of our mind. Uh, Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 10.5. He says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is a daily battle. We daily have to play this battle that goes on in between our ears, in our minds, to, to win the, the battle of, of our thoughts and, of our, against, and fight the enemy's attacks. So in order to do that, we have to First, be aware of the kind of common lies um, that the enemy will use so that as they come up, they're kind of red flags or warning signs in our minds, and we go, oh, that's a common lie. Watch out, and we avoid it. Um, so last week, we talked about the first of the five common lies that we're going to talk about in this series, and that's the common lie of it's too hard. And the truth to combat that lie, we've said, is found in Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, we're going to face a lot of situations that we've talked about that are really, really hard, but they're not too hard, not with God's help. Now, the problem with sometimes, just to clarify for that verse uh, that we t- sometimes take out of context, is we think, all right, so anything I want to do, God's going to give me the power to do. And eh, not so much. What that verse really means is actually anything that God wants you to do, he'll give you the ability to do. Um, but we can move forward in the things that he's called us to do because he gives us the power to do them. So this week, we're going to cover the second common lie, which is this. It's not fair. How many of you have ever said or thought in your mind about any situation or person, it's just not fair? Has anyone ever thought that before? A handful of you guys, most of you are like, no, I live a pretty charmed life. Um, all right, so a second question then. How many of you have ever felt feelings of anger or bitterness or envy or jealousy towards a person or towards a situation? Raise your hand. That's just about everybody, right? See, the thing is, most of those emotions that I just mentioned actually have their root in this lie of it's not fair. So deep down, if you're feeling any of those emotions, chances are you've bought in to some degree the idea of it's not fair. And so we're going to talk about that more. We're going to package that. Um, it's not fair 
is a common lie that the enemy will use. Um, and if we hold on to it and run with it, we can really do a lot of damage. And so what I want to do for, for the rest of our time is I want us to look at, okay, what are two primary situations that we regularly face that the enemy is most effective in getting us to believe in this lie? And then I want us to uh, look at some examples of that and begin to break down the lie a little bit more and then talk about, okay, what, what could life look like if we chose to buy into that lie and then how can we practically fight against it? That'll be the last part of our time. So the first of the two primary situations I think we commonly face where we're tempted to give in to this lie is when we compare ourselves to other people. Have you ever had situations where you compared people and usually the compared situations that we're tempted to believe this lie is when we compare ourselves to someone else and we come up short. We're on the short end of it's not fair thought. Um, maybe it's comparison related to looks or social status or maybe it's comparison related to you know, wealth or athleticism or your personality or your relationship status or lack thereof. You know, I mean, you name it. There, there is an unending amount of areas you can compare yourself to someone else to. And very often it's easy to find yourself on the short end of that comparison. And then you start to feel sorry for yourself. And then you start to throw a little bit of a pity party for yourself. And before you know it, you're right on the cusp of beginning to buy into life. It's not fair. And so very, very easy to do. Now, I know that's been true of my life. In fact, when I was in college, one of the things that was um, the bigger, air, bigger rocks for me where I, I had to battle this thought sometimes uh, is in the job I had uh, at the OU cafeteria. Um, how many of you guys have eaten at the cafeteria here at USC? Pretty much every one of you guys, right? They're not exactly the most like, glamorous places to eat in the world. Um, even less glamorous is working in the kitchen and back of those cafeterias. And I didn't go to school here, but our cafeteria was just as unequally glamorous, and the kitchen area was the same, too. And, you know, when you're in the cafeteria, um, I wasn't doing, like, cool chefy things like you would see on TV, like, oh, yeah, I'm making this dish and that. No, I was, like, scrubbing pots and pans that people had, like, burnt food on and caked on there for hours on end. Or that little tray that you, people just, like, don't even think about it. They put the tray on and they walk out of the cafeteria. That goes into a room. We called it the scrape room. And that's where you would scrape all the food that was left over off on people's trays into the trash. And as I'm doing that for hours and like condiments and drinks are splashing on me and I'm throwing all the food in this trash can, the smells start to get to you after a while because hours and hours of food that's some warm, some cold is just simmering together in this trash can. And you start to smell like everything you scraped off these plates. And it's not exactly the funnest thing in the world. And I did that for 20 hours a week for three years so that I could pay to live in school and be in their dorms for three years. Um, so during that time, it was very easy to buy into a lot of these it's not fair type of ideas. Like, it's not fair that I have to work 20 hours a week while a lot of my friends don't have to work a job at all. And so they have 20 extra hours in their week to sleep or to hang out or to do homework or whatever they're doing. You know, it's not fair that I have to work a job like this when some of my friends that do have to work have cushy jobs like at the library where they do homework for their 20 hours and they do, or they sleep. And some of you guys probably have those jobs. Those are awesome. Hold on to them if you haven't. But I was jealous. I was like, what the heck? Like, how come I don't have a job like that? I actually have to work at my job. Go figure. Or it's not fair that 
I had to, they asked me to take on management type responsibilities after my first year, but I couldn't give the hours of a manager, but they still gave me the responsibilities of a manager, but didn't pay me like a manager. I was like, hey, that's not fair. Um, or it's not fair that every dime that went from those paychecks working 20 hours a week actually would go to pay for my room board, and I got to actually see none of it go in my own bank account. So if I wouldn't go on any dates, if I wouldn't do anything fun, that came from either summer jobs or giving plasma at the local plasma bank right here. <laughs> I did it about once a week. It's how I pay for my dates with Katie, who is now my wife. So it was a good thing, but I was like, <laughs> that's not fair that I had to do that. Or at least it felt that way. And all sort of these it's not fair thoughts, they really appealed to just my emotions and my pride and stuff like that. Um, Yet, by the grace of God, in general, although I did struggle with that from time to time, most of the time I actually didn't buy into the lie of it's not fair. By the grace of God and because there was a specific truth that I chose to believe instead. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But first I want to talk about what's the other type of common situation that it's easy to buy into this lie. And I think that's when situations when we are wronged by other people. In situations where we're wronged by other people, have you ever had times where people have spread slander or gossip about you? Um, Or maybe they've lied to you about something and then you acted upon what you thought was truth, which was actually a lie, and it caused you to do something really stupid? I have. Or maybe someone's undercut you to get a position on a team or a club or a date. And that just eats at you. And what's even worse, what makes it even more intolerable, is when they do that, and it doesn't look like they're going to experience the consequences of their actions at all. They're going to get away with it. And they might even thrive as a result of it. That just cries out, it's not fair, and you want to just do something about it. Um, Now, in the Bible, probably the poster child for being treated like this way is a guy named Joseph. And if none of you guys have heard of him, I'm going to give you a little bit of background about his life, Uh, but he had a pretty it's-not-fair kind of life for at least the first half of his life. Um, And if you want to read about some time on your own, uh, read in Genesis chapters 37 through 46 is kind of the highlights of his life. But basically, this is Joseph's life in a nutshell. So he was the 11th of 12 sons that a guy named Israel had, who who was also called Jacob. But he was a 11th or 12 sons, but he was Israel's favorite son. In fact, he even got this kind of special coat just to remind his brothers from his dad that this is my favorite son. I want you to know that. Now, some parents joke about that. He actually had one. This is my favorite son. I like him more than you guys. Um, I can't relate to that. Um, anyway, so he, you can probably guess that his brothers weren't too happy about that. In fact, they kind of hated it. They hated him. And they had less than pleasant thoughts about him on a regular basis. And even more so when he began to tell him, hey guys, I'm having like dreams where you guys are bowing down to me and I'm kind of the ruler. And they're like, okay, last straw, where can we kill him? And we're going to kill him and we're going to blame it on a wild animal and tell dad, hey, the wild animal killed him. But instead they decided to be gracious and just sell him into slavery, you know. And, and now, he was about 17 years old when this happened. He gets sold into slavery into Egypt. He's about the age that most of you guys are pretty close to, give or take a couple of years. Now, you guys have to deal with, like, chemistry and, like, riding 340. He was sold into slavery in Egypt, miles from his home. And so that's not very fair. 
And then he ends up uh, working in this man's house, Pot, this guy named Potiphar, who was the Pharaoh's captain, captain of Pharaoh's guard in Egypt. He ends up working for him. He gets bought by him, and he works really hard. And he actually rises to prominence in this guy's house, and he's over his entire house. And it's looking pretty good for a second. And then Potiphar's wife notices, hey, pretty good looking guy. Maybe I should see if he wants to sleep with me. But Joseph says, no, I can't do that. And it's this, you know, sexual tension back and forth, back and forth. And she keeps saying, he keeps saying, no, finally she goes, okay, cry and rape. Uh, If you don't want to sleep with me, I'm going to pretend that you raped me and it's my word against yours. So what happens to him? He gets thrown in jail. Not very fair. And then while he's in jail, he ends up rising to prominence again. It ends up being over all the jail people there, and he's, he's working in there. I don't know. It's like not exactly a great position, but you're in charge of the jail people, and he's doing that. And so a couple of Pharaoh's officials get thrown in jail too. His cupbearer, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker, they did something that really ticked him off. So they get thrown in jail, and they have these, after a while while they're in jail, they have these dreams that they're really troubling them. And so somehow they find out, you know, Joseph can interpret their dreams. So Joseph tells them what their dreams mean. It turns out that the baker's dream meant that in three days he was going to get out of jail and then he was going to be executed. Bummer. Um, But the cupbearer of Pharaoh had another dream where he was going to be getting out of jail three days, except he was going to get put back in the position of prominence that he was in before. He would be restored as a cupbearer of Pharaoh. And so what Joseph tells the cupbearer, he says, hey, your friend over there, he's, he's going to die. So, but you, you're going to actually get out. So when you get out, if you could talk to Pharaoh to, for, for me and say, hey, you know what? I was wrongfully taken from my land, sold into slavery, and then I'm in jail even now, and I've done nothing wrong. Could I please get out? And the cupbearer's like, sure, I'll do it. So three days pass. What Joseph said actually comes to pass. The baker gets butchered, unfortunately. And... Uh, the cupbearer gets restored, but the cupbearer forgets about Joseph, and it's like, oh my gosh, really? And Joseph uh, has to be in prison for another two years, and at this point, he's thinking, I'm 30 years old. It's been 13 years since I was sold into slavery. I'm in jail. Things aren't going very well for me. What the heck? Um, But it's amazing, though, that the Bible says that in all of this, Joseph actually walked with God, and he trusted God, and he did what was right in God's eyes. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, how is that possible? What did, what did he do that allowed him to not give in to the lie of, it's not fair in this situation? Well, although Joseph's story is a lot more epic and dramatic and impressive than my story of the cafeteria, um, the, the truth that he chose to believe to combat the lie of it's not fair is actually the same one that I believe. And it's this on the screen here. The truth is this. God is good. He's in control. And he will not rip you off. See, in my eyes and in Joseph's eyes, our situation seemed to be pretty unfair. But the truth was that God is actually good. God is actually in control and he will not rip me off. And each part of that is important because, see, God is all good. He's 100% good. But see, if you're good, but you have no power, eh, there's not a lot of weight behind your goodness, you know. But the fact that he is all good and all powerful, he, you can trust him that he's not going to rip you off. 
So I want to break down a little bit more of this, this lie that the enemy gets us to believe it's not fair because another truth that's actually true is that lie is actually partially true. Um, life really isn't fair. I don't know if, if, if you just now are realizing I'm sorry, um, but it's not. Um, didn't mean to burst your bubble. Santa Claus doesn't really either. Um, but so, I know. But anyway, life isn't fair. And not only that, but the reality is, if we think about it, most of us really aren't interested in fair in the first place. We really just want what we want. Have you thought about the fact that whenever you're on the upside of fair, of it's not fair situation, you, you tend to not really complain very much? You know, when you, when you cry out to God, I didn't study at all for that test, please have mercy on me, and you get a good grade, you don't cry out, it's not fair, I got a good grade, you know? <laughs> Or if you came from a home where, which is a lot more common these days, where both your parents are still married and you haven't had to go through the experience of parents that went through divorce, you're typically not crying out. It's not fair. My parents are still married, you know. Or if you just have the bigger piece of the pie of whatever type of situation or area of life in general, you're typically not crying out. It's not fair. I have more. What's going on? You know, so really it's not necessarily about fair as often much as it really is, but we just what we want. And the truth is also that it's actually not a bad thing in some ways that fairness doesn't exist. Because see, without, if, if life was completely fair, God's mercy and grace that we experience would not exist. Because see, the fact that we got grace and mercy and that Jesus chose to die for us was not fair. But yet we're really glad he did. And even though life isn't fair, the reason it's not fair is a really dangerous idea to embrace and a dangerous idea to entertain is because the enemy uses the, the thought of it's not fair actually to get us to believe something even worse. He gets it to, he uses the idea of it's not fair to undermine our very trust in God in the first place. He'll use it to get us to buy into the fact that God actually is not good, that God actually is not in control, and that God is actually going to rip us off if we follow him. Therefore, he cannot be trusted. And that is actually an outright lie. He can be trusted. He actually is good. He's in control. And he won't rip you off if you follow him. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, it says right here on the screen, that we should trust in the Lord with all of our heart. And lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him, and he will make our path straight. See, throughout my cafeteria experience, uh, during it, and I, even as I look back on it, there were some times here and there where I did grumble and complain, and I kind of lost perspective of the good thing of the job I had. But in general, I was actually pretty grateful that I had it. Um, it you know, it allowed me to afford a meal plan in the dorm for three years of college. I was able to really actually, as a result of that, have a real ministry and impact in a lot of freshmen's lives in the dorms because I lived with them all three years, and then I was an RA my senior year. Um, it also allowed me to have a ministry with some of my coworkers at the cafeteria, some that were students and some that were just adults as well. Um, and actually, even though I had to work 20 hours a week, it forced me to be a little more focused on the time of studying when I wasn't at work, which turns out I ended up getting better grades than most of my friends who didn't have jobs because they just didn't manage their time very well. They had more time than they knew what to do with. Um, and then I think maybe one of the greatest blessings looking back on that is as I spent like 
what seemed hours on end scrubbing pots and pans, which is pretty mindless work, for the first time I actually began to develop a vibrant prayer life where I was like, well, God, I got nothing else to do. I could daydream, but if I daydream about everything I could think about, I'll talk to you. And so I talked to him about things going on in my own life or talked to him about people's lives and began to actually have a consistent prayer life for the very first time because I was scrubbing pots and pans 20 hours a week. Another way that truth that we just talked about can be stated is in this verse right here, Romans 8, 28, Paul speaks about this. It's a very similar idea. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And I really believe that because I've experienced that and I know his word to be true. Now for Joseph, I won't tell you all the details. You can read it for yourself. But basically what happened is within a very short time frame, at the age of 30, he goes from being in prison to second in command over all of Egypt, which is a pretty good gig for a 30-year-old. I'm 30. I mean, I'm not in charge of any countries. Um, and yet, and so while he's in charge of second in command of all of Egypt, they experience the seven years of great harvest and just surpluses of food. So he saves a lot of it each year because God tells him, hey, in seven years after that, there's going to be this big famine and you need to have food for that. So he saves all those things. So during the seven years of famine, people from all over Egypt and all over the rest of the world are coming to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And guess who shows up to buy some grain? His brothers. Now, Joseph could have just slaughtered them right there on the spot when he saw them. Or he could have sold them into slavery. He had the power to do so. He was second in command of all of Egypt. But yet, instead, he actually chooses to be gracious to them. He forgives them. And he even provides food for all of them and for all of their wives and kids and their family. Which I'm thinking, wow, that is not what I expected. I was thinking like the biggest I told you so in the history of the world right here. Like, I told you my dream was going to be true. You're going to bow down to me. But instead, he's very gracious. He forgives them. And I'm thinking, as I read that for the first time, I was thinking, okay, God, how is that possible that he would have that kind of perspective? Like, why would he react that way? What caused him to think that? And he says, and Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, a very similar idea to Romans 8, 28, and similar to the truth we talked about. He says, you intended, speaking to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended for it to accomplish, for, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So you see, both, both Romans 8, 28 and, Roman, and Genesis 50, verse 20 have the same underlying truth, which is that God is good, God is in control, and he will not rip you off if you follow him. So I want to talk about, okay, what would happen if you chose to begin to, if you chose to live out of the lie versus the truth? What, would, what could possibly be true of your life? Well, unfortunately, I think what happened is you'd begin to live a life of hopeless, you begin to live a life of a hopeless victim. And that's actually a pretty terrible thing. And I'll tell you a couple reasons why I think it is. One, if you're living the life of a hopeless victim, you're going to be throwing yourself a lot of pity parties. You know, I mean, because that's what victims do. They throw pity parties. And if you throw too many pity parties, what that's eventually going to lead to is maybe some severe depression. And the reason that is, is because you can get by in life without a lot of things decently for a while, but you can't live very long without hope. If you're a hopeless victim, your, your soul and your heart begins to finally melt because there is no good insight in the future. You start to get further and further down the depression hole, and life is not very good. 
And then a second problem with being a hopeless victim is people that develop this victim mentality for too long, they begin to develop a chip on their shoulder. I don't know if you've noticed that about people that have that mentality. Is They begin to let bitterness and anger and resentment settle into their hearts, and it drastically affects their relationship with God and their relationship with other people. It begins to erode their trust in God. And over time, they ruin a lot of relationships, both with God and with other people. And people that live out of a hopeless victim mentality, one of the things that begins to be true of them, they have a really tough time celebrating good things that go on in other people's lives. I don't know if you've ever been around people like that before, but something good goes on in someone else's life, and rather than being able to get excited, genuinely excited to celebrate with them, all they see is another thing they do not have and another reason why life is just not fair. And if you've ever been around people like that, maybe you've been that person. It's not fun to be around people like that. In fact, people tend to avoid people like that. So you will lead not only a hopeless victim life, but a fairly lonely life over time. And then I think a third thing that could happen if you buy in this hopeless victim mentality is absolutely nothing. And what I mean by that is this. You know, we may go to school and we may have a job and a family, but in terms of advancing the kingdom of God, we're doing absolutely nothing. And it's as if we really didn't exist in the first place because we're too busy complaining and feeling like we got the raw end of life. And so we don't actually take hold of the things that God has for us and the good things he has in store for our future because we're a hopeless victim life's not fair. So if that's what could happen to you if you choose to live out of this life, I want to wrap up with, okay, how do we practically avoid this? If you don't want that kind of future, what are some things you can practically do to begin to avoid that? Um, The first thing I would say is this, resist and replace. This is what we said you do with the enemy's attacks, resist and replace. When you're being tempted to buy into the lie, it's not fair, and then the pity party jingle song in your head starts up, whatever that is for you. Maybe it's, I'm so lonely. I don't know. But maybe it's a dip song for you. Whenever that theme music starts to play inside of your head, you need to resist by asking God for help, first and foremost. You resist, and then you replace that lie by actually saying out loud to yourself the truth. God, you are good, you are in control, and you will not rip me off. I've, I've actually done this in situations, and I've had to do it multiple times because I didn't believe myself the first time, you know. And I said it over and over again until I actually began to believe it, and then I'd move on. And then maybe the next day I felt the same thing again. I have to tell myself it again. God, you are good, you are in control, and you will not rip me off. And then the second thing I think you can do is practice daily gratitude. Um, make it a habit just to Tell other people or tell yourself or journal things that you are grateful for on a regular basis. Um, Now, each of us, actually, the only thing we really do deserve is death. Uh, Everything you have in life, including the very next breath that you breathe, is actually a gift from God. So we don't walk around with this mentality of entitlement. We're actually, we, we learn to be grateful people. And so, I mean, you could do that very practically just with your friends or your roommates. One of the things Katie and I just started doing recently is when we're at dinner, we just try to tell each other, okay, what's one thing you're grateful for today? Not like in the past, like, oh, I'm grateful for this or that, but like what happened in the last 24 hours that you're grateful for? That it really helps us battle this lie of it's not fair because it's really easy to give into. And then the third thing I think you could do is 
memorize Genesis 50.20 or Romans 8.28, which they're right up here on the next slide, just so you see those again. Um, those are really good verses. Same, speak to the same kind of idea of the truth that we're talking about. Those are great verses to memorize. And whenever the feeling of it's not fair starts to creep into a situation, quote that to yourself and tell it to yourself over and over. Recite that truth. And then the last thing I would say is determine to walk with God within the circumstances you are in and the resources, and the resources he has given you. Now, you can, there's nothing wrong with praying and asking for more or asking for a circumstance to change or situation to change. I do that all the time. But until God chooses to change them, or if he chooses not to give you something for a season because it's not good for you at the time, or maybe he takes away something for a season because he doesn't want you to have it, rather than fall on the ground and start throwing yourself a pity party because it's not fair, decide he's good, he's in control, he knows what's best. He's not going to rip me off. So I'm going to move forward in life with the resources he's given me right now and the circumstances he has me in right now. And then you begin to move forward and you begin to actually make some progress. And if you begin to practice these different things and situations, you actually find you are a whole lot less likely to be duped into believing the lie of it's not fair. And you actually begin to make some progress in life. So let me pray for us and the band is going to come back up and lead us to some more worship and uh, we will move on. God, thank you so much that... uh, even though the enemy is much more powerful than we are, and even though uh, we don't stand a fighting chance against him by ourselves, you really do give us the opportunity to have a relationship with you, and you give us clear tactics and weapons in your scriptures to really combat these lies and to really know what truth is. And so I do pray, God, that we would be aware of the enemy's schemes, and we would really uh, be mindful of those and fight against them with truth from your word. And God, that we would just make it a habit also to really encourage one another that, um, and ask each other, hey, you know, how are you doing with not believing these lies? Where in your life is it? Are you tempted to do that? And that we would just not be duped into living a helpless victim life that really just leads to nothing. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.